This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Thursday, October 5th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we are going to be talking about the best films from Fantastic Fest 2023. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com and uh, joining me on today's episode is Slash Film editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, welcome back to the show. It's been too long. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm. It's not COVID, but I have something today. And it's probably due to me being at a film festival last week. And I'm yeah, not happy about the, it. the dreaded festival sickness, man. Well, it is what it is. Uh, so I, I, I guess we get to Fantastic Fest first. I'm sorry, second, because I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, it's fine. I was just I, I have in our document here um, four trailers uh, before we get into what's been going on with Fantastic Fest, and and we're going to do sort of like a mini water cooler segment here. Um, but we don't have to go through these trailers one by one. But I just wanted to mention them because I thought all of them were pretty good to great trailers. So John Woo's Silent Night. There's a uh, dialogue free action movie set at Christmas time starring Joel Kinnaman. That looks pretty interesting. Um, Sofia Coppola's trailer for Priscilla, the movie about Priscilla Presley, the wife of Elvis Presley. Um, that trailer looks really good, I think. Uh, Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, and Mahershala Ali star in the trailer for Leave the World Behind, which is a Netflix movie from the director of Mr. Robot. And then uh, just today, before we started recording, Jason Statham uh, plays a beekeeper in an action movie called, yes, The Beekeeper, which just looks incredible and is like one of my favorite trailers in quite some time. So I just wanted to put it's all the best these... trailer of the year. The be- Stop what you're doing, everybody. Go watch the Beekeeper trailer. It I, having it described to you, you would think we're describing a Simpsons joke, like like, like a, a '90s era Simpsons <laughs> parody of a trailer. But it looks amazing. Oh, my God, it looks amazing. <laughs> so much fun. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to put those on people's radar. Uh, of course, you can click the the links in the show notes and you'll be taken right to them. So, um, all right, let's get into what we've been doing. Uh, Jacob, I just wanted to mention real quick, I celebrated my birthday uh, on Happy Friday. birthday, Ben. Or, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, last Friday. Um, yeah, just a, a quiet, low-key family thing. Um, I'm having happy birthday to me. I'm having a bunch of contractors at my house trying to 
fix wood rot and all sorts of nonsense going on. So it's not too bad, I don't think. But uh, that's why, once again, we're recording one day early. So if something insane happens in the movie-related world on uh, on Wednesday evening or Thursday morning, and we're not talking about it on today's show, that's why. But um, let's get into what we're really here to talk about, Jacob. Uh, you attended F- uh, Fantastic Fest 2023. How was your experience this year? Hmm. It's- I'm not trying to answer that question because I've been attending Fantastic Fest since 2009-2010. It's uh, the Austin, Texas-based genre film festival. I've had some of the best weeks of my life at this fest. Um, And unfortunately, a few years ago, the fest underwent some massive overhauls due to um, uh, certain members of the leadership not not behaving responsibly. Uh, And weirdly, the the fest really hasn't recovered. Uh, As new people took over leadership at the fest, the programming has remained largely good. Uh, you know, maybe not as adventurous as it used to be, but it's been a, a reliably entertaining week of programming. But the fest isn't as well run as it used to be. This was the big, you know, conversation amongst longtime fest goers was that the systems that were put in place by the old guard to ensure people having a good time for both press and regular folks that ensured that everybody who came would have a stress-free week. They could relax. They could enjoy themselves. They could just focus on having a good time and not standing in lines. Not watching apps not clicking refresh on a ticketing website that's all gone now the new systems in place make it into just not a film festival in terms of organization it's chaotic it's messy it's a headache i was sending emails constantly to our press reps to try to get to try to do my job and the people who paid to come down uh to attend the fest who had who had to get a hotel or an airbnb nearby you know to stand in 100 degree texas heat um to maybe get into a movie uh not a good feeling so I'm really, really hoping that the Fantastic Fest organization uh, organizers listen to the feedback and bring back some of the old ways they used to run things, some of the old methods, the ones that made this the film festival that was a breeze to cover and a breeze to attend and one that I could recommend people saying, yeah, it, it'll feel like an actual vacation if you come because it no longer feels like a vacation in any way, in any way, shape or form, which is a real shame. But you know what? Programming was still good. So I'll give them that. Excellent. All right. Well, I'm, I'm excited to talk about the movies that you saw and, uh, and hear about the total insanity because that's sort of like what fantastic fest is known for. It's much more of a, a genre festival, much more um, pushing the envelope than, you know, a more traditional festival like uh, Toronto or Sundance or something like that. So um, we'll get into that very shortly. In the meantime, though, let's talk about what we've been reading recently. What have you been reading, Jacob? You've, you've been reading a bunch of stuff. Yes. This is actually, I've, this is only a, a, I'll probably be fast with these because there's a lot of books. I've been reading a lot recently. Uh, have you read Daniel Krause's whale fall or have you heard of it, Ben? I am not. What's this? Okay, here's the elevator pitch for this book. What if you took The Martian and you set it inside a whale and it took place over 90 minutes? Uh, inside a living whale, like uh, Pinocchio style. Yes, uh, this is a scientifically accurate book by Daniel Krauss, uh, who's written a lot of books. It's my first of his books I've read. Uh, about a young scuba diver who's actually swallowed by a sperm whale and what happens in the 90 minutes of oxygen he has in his tank as he tries to escape. Wow. And uh, it jumps forward and backwards in time. It, it has dueling narratives of him trying to skip the whale, but also his relationship with his father, which is the reason why he's out scuba diving, which is, you know, all the to be discovered is it bounces, you know, you know, to like 10 years earlier, five years earlier, one year earlier. It's bounced all in the timeline as he's lost in his own mind, as he tries to escape the whale. Um, 
And as you expect, a, a whale's body is not hospitable to humans. So there's some real body horror that ends up happening here. So word of <laughs> warning, if you're squeamish, this is not a book for you. But it's rare to read a book that feels so primed to be a movie. Like Whale Fall, it feels like, oh, this should be a movie. It's so propulsive and exciting. And uh, it's like the way it's structured suggests like some really awesome editing could happen if you like structure screenplay, the, f- the flash backwards and forwards in time inside and outside the whale. But also it's a movie where the vast majority of the movie takes place literally inside a, a nearly pitch black whale. So I don't know how there's a movie here, but it reads like one. And it's really exciting to like try to picture that in my head. Um, what you just described reminded me a little bit of the movie Buried with Ryan Reynolds in a coffin for the whole film, um, except he had a lighter in that case. And I'm guessing the <laughs> the circumstances are slightly different inside the body of a whale. So I wonder what they could possibly do about like the lighting situation for I, I, a setting like that. Some light, like, I don't, I don't want to spoil too much because the, the, the discovery of what he has to work with in this whale is part of the fun of it. Uh, but he is, he is, the, the remains of a giant squid are also in the whale's stomach and that's bioluminescent. So there's, there's some, there, there are light for certain portions of the whale, depending upon how fresh the squid is and what wow. part, of, part of the whale he's in. So that's all. <laughs> so like, but it's not the most advantageous lighting to, 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 to make a movie in. <laughs> okay. So that's called whale fall. That sounds pretty incredible actually. Um, all right. What else have you been checking out? Uh, I read Agatha Christie's and then there were none. Uh, one of her most famous books. Uh, I think I saw it's, it's her, her best selling book and one of the best selling murder mysteries of all time. I read it in one sitting. I started reading it at 9 p.m. You can always read a couple chapters to go to bed. Then a little after midnight, I finished it. I just could not stop. I literally had to know what was going to happen in this. I'm on a new quest to read a lot more Agatha Christie. Uh, seeing A Haunting in Venice, a film I really, really liked, reminded me that I've only read a handful of her books. And it's time to, to try to like do more. And this is famously one of her non-Poirot books, non-Miss Marple books. It is uh, a, a whole new cast of characters. And it's in many ways uh, invented a template for, for the slasher film. I mean, in, in 1939, 30 years before, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween uh, started, you know, making the idea of, you know, a lone killer picking off group of people one by one into a popular genre. Here's Agatha Christie doing it, you know, in... In like her, you know, more traditional British sense of the word. Uh, but it's Ben, have you read in there were then there were nineties? I know you've I read some. Okay. Do you agree with me? This is like one of the darkest books Christy probably ever wrote. It's 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 bleak stuff in, but I also like cannot stop reading it. It is bleak. I would say off the top of my head, um, the ABC murders is uh, is more bleak because that is a Poirot story in which um, a serial killer just targets random uh like civilians who happen to have um, different names that begin with certain letters of the alphabet and just murders them as a way to like taunt Poro into like, you can't solve this mystery fast enough. So it's very, um, yeah, like, like uh, inhumane and, and feels, yeah, very, very bleak in that way. And then the, there were none kind of feels it's, it's a dark book, but to me, it's been a little while since I read it, but to me, it feels like all of the characters, it's that classic like Clue-esque setup where all these characters are brought to this uh, mansion at the same time. And it seems like most of the characters are kind of pieces of shit, you know, and they kind of deserved what, <laughs> what were coming to them. Um, so I don't know, in my memory, it doesn't seem quite as dark, uh, but maybe it's just because I haven't read it in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, every character in this book is horrible. And it's one of those weird things where sometimes when you read a book written in this era, you go, oh my goodness, was that racism or anti-Semitism part of the author's thoughts or, the, or, or a reflection of the character's thoughts? And I was, it's kind of a, it's kind of like a sigh of relief that some of the racism in this book is relegated to 
the characters being absolute pieces of garbage as opposed <laughs> to the, the period of the time it was written. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, yeah, man, I, I'm excited to see you dive into Christie's books. I, I would love for you to tell me more about them as you read them. Cause I'm, I have several on my shelf and I've read probably, I don't know, six to 10 of them at this point, maybe or around there. But um, I st- certainly have a lot of work left to do in that regard too. But uh, yeah, for sure. I, I'm glad to have you on, on the journey sort of uh, parallel with me as well. All right. Uh, well, let's see what else. Speaking of dark books, uh, I've read The Devil Takes You Home. Speaking of books, I devoured like extremely quickly. Uh, this is the new book by uh, Gabino Iglesias. I have not read any of his other books, but it's... um. I could best describe it as magical realism horror story uh, in that it's about a depressed uh, hitman slash criminal for hire who's grieving uh, a tragedy who takes on a extremely dangerous job of robbing uh, some Mexican drug suppliers as trying to transport, transport cash across the border. He teams up with two other criminals who are sent this job and goes on a quest that starts off very much as a noir dark crime story. And slowly, in, 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 in slow motion, so imperceptible, you sometimes don't even notice how deep you are until it starts happening. It becomes a horror story. Uh, what kind of horror story? I don't want to say, except that it's set in a world where the main characters acknowledge, yes, this is deeply unusual, this is happening, but don't act like it's entirely out of the realm of possibility. Like, they kind of accept the horror as it happens, hmm. which makes the idea that you're being lowered into this situation all the more unsettling. I'll, I don't want to say too much, but this book has been winning all the recent horror awards. It's been one like the horror people I know who, who stay up top of horror lit were telling me I need to read. Uh, I found it deeply upsetting, deeply creepy. And it's the kind of book that's so good that I started casting it in my head and, and like, you know, thinking this is going to be an A24 movie. It's going to star so-and-so. You know, I, I just, uh, Devil Takes You Home is by far the best new horror book I've read in some time. Awesome. Okay, cool. The Devil Takes You Home is what that one's called. Uh, what else have you been reading, Jacob? Uh, I read Disney Revolt by Jake S. Friedman. This is a book about the uh, animator strike that the uh, Walt Disney Animation Studio uh, animators did in 1941. I knew a little bit about this strike because I read uh, Neil Gabler's Walt Disney biography a few years ago. But this is a whole book about this one period of time when Disney's... Uh, animators walked off the job or, or depending on who you talk to either most of them or a lot or a lot of them walked off the job and created this permanent schism in disney studios uh, that ended up affecting the company in major ways and i want to read this because i want to see if there are any parallels to you know the, the writer and the writer acting strikes you know as, as we record this the writer strike is over the acting strike is still ongoing uh but i want to see what what i could learn about you know the current strikes by looking back to this famous strike from the 40s and what i learned was that uh, so, so, you just say this very carefully because I feel like people could take this out of context. Uh, the old school Hollywood tyrants of the 40s, we didn't know how good we had it, Ben, because Disney's employees were going on a strike because they were being asked to work 80 hour weeks or not getting paid bonuses and were being told, like, you know, um, certain people get certain boons and others don't. Um, and it was, it was unclear and it was unfair, and the writers deserved the strike. But Disney, Walt Disney's response was, but don't you like making movies? I love making movies. We should all be working 80-hour weeks. Making movies is great. We should all aspire to make great art. Uh, destroy your lives to make great art, please. Um, which is horrible. And I'm glad his, the strikers ultimately won and get what they deserved. Uh, increased pay, better hours, etc. But in an era where every Hollywood CEO is work 80 hours a week for no pay because F you, I want more money. Mm-hmm. Or the shareholders need more money. 
I feel like Walt Disney is the lesser of two evils in a pretty substantial way here. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I mean, I, I guess it's just because like the uh, the long arm of capitalism hadn't grown quite as long, you know, back in the 20s or whatever. So like uh, those problems have just been exacerbated as like uh, shareholders and stock prices have become like the, the dominant, um, you know, tools of the trade or whatever when it comes to making decisions in Hollywood. So uh, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I don't know, I haven't read the book, but it sounds like what you're saying is like, it was a, it was straight up a more simple time in that, in yes. that respect, right? Yeah. The book is incredibly informative, entertaining. Uh, and I, it really reads like a Martin Scorsese movie. Like it really has the propulsion of like a Wolf of Wall Street or a Goodfellas in terms of how it, how, how it tells a story. Um, and like I said, if you are in, at all interested in, you know, entertainment industry, labor stories or Disney company or animation and how it was created and people who made it, um, this book is an absolute must read. I, I learned a lot about animation, which takes me to why I read my next book, uh, Wild Minds by Reed Mittenbuehler. I was so interested in how Disney Revolt depicted the industry of animation in the 40s and 30s and how animators worked. And I was so it, so fascinated by the brief glimpses we see in that book of the Warner Brothers animators, uh, including Chuck, Chuck Jones, who literally led the Warner Brothers animators and Looney Tunes crew on marches um, in costume, using props and, 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 and outrageous themes to try to support the, the Disney um, strikers, that I wanted to learn more about Looney Tunes and about the uh, and about their animators, which is that I want to learn more about you know the other animators of that period as well. Which led me to Wild Wild Minds, full title: Wild Minds: The Artists and Rivalries That Inspire the Golden Age of Animation. If you've read a Disney biography, a lot of the Disney stuff in here will be pretty familiar. Uh, but the other stuff here about um, Warner Brothers and Chuck Jones, uh, about um, uh, uh, Max Fleischer and you know Betty Boop and, and that era and those cartoonists, as well as the very early cartoonists and animators, the ones who were creating flip books and inventing the rules of animation in 1911, 1912. Uh, this book was fascinating. Uh, as it goes along, it becomes more and more about Disney and more and more familiar. So if you like know Disney history already, the back half of Wild Minds is going to be a little bit too familiar, I think. Uh, but the front half, where it's about Fleischer versus Disney uh, and about the formation of Warner Brothers Studios and how animation was really in a stranglehold by absolute scum and was rescued by people who truly cared about it. It's a remarkable story. And learning how animation you know, came to be and became an art form and learning the stories about Fleischer and and, and Warner Brothers were, were worth the worth relearning all the Disney stuff. But if you, but honestly, if you haven't read a Disney biography and you just want animation stories, uh, Wild Minds is going to be my new go-to book to recommend. And then from there on, say, oh, do you want more? And go read Disney Revolt or go read Neil Gabriel's Disney biography. But this is kind of a really good catch-all for anybody who wants, you know, why animation matters and why it's an art form. And I think it's very, very, very specific that the book chooses to cover the first 50 years of American animation, roughly, you know, early 1900s through 1950s. Because up until that point, the book argues uh, animation was for adults. It was for, you know, kids could watch it too, but, it was, but the main audience was for adults in theaters who wanted to enjoy an artistic movie that was done by artists hand-drawing something. Mm-hmm. And the, the book's old final message, I guess mild spoiler for a nonfiction book, is that once television comes around and serial companies were able to start licensing um, old cartoons and censoring them and using them to sell stuff, uh, only then did animation become pigeonholed as a kid's thing, a, a, a fight that, you know, modern animation artists are still trying to fight against. So the book tries to you say, here's 50 years of history as to why animation should be respected as a proper art form. 
And here's why you may think people, why you and so many people grew up thinking it's just for kids. So that's Wild Minds. I found it invaluable, Ben. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great, man. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I, that's one of those subjects that like, I didn't think I was really interested in, but hearing you talk about it makes me want to learn more. So uh, the Disney Revolt and Wild Minds are the last two books you mentioned. And yeah, that sounds great. Okay, so let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. All right, let's get into what we've been watching. I watched a movie called Faux. Have you seen this one yet, Jacob? No, I've seen the. I think I've seen the trailer, but I I, th- I haven't had a chance to actually see this yet. I saw a lot of negative responses, to be honest. Yeah, I would recommend skipping this one. Unfortunately, uh, even though it has a really good cast, Saoirse Ronan and Paul Mescal or Mescal. Do you, do you know the proper pronunciation? Uh, this guy's everywhere now. I should probably learn how to say his name correctly. I've been saying Mescal, but okay, <laughs> someone should right. someone should email us and let us know. Uh, okay, so um, the movie is directed by Garth Davis, who uh, is the guy behind a movie called Lion with, with um, Deb Patel that came out a few years ago. Uh, and this is uh, co-written with uh, Garth, Garth Davis and Ian Reed, who is the writer of I'm Thinking of Ending Things, the, the book that Charlie Kaufman uh, adapted for his movie, I think that was like a year or two ago. Uh, the premise of this story is that there is a married couple and they're living in isolation in the future. And the world is, has been decimated by climate change and uh, a stranger arrives at their farmhouse door and basically just like drops a bomb on them and completely upends their lives. And I don't really want to say too much more in case people do want to check this out because uh, this is a movie that sort of, I want to say lives and dies on its reveals, but it kind of just dies on its reveals because like the whole movie you spend wondering what the hell is going on and not in a really entertaining or enlightening or intriguing way, kind of in a really frustrating way where you're just like the characters are making decisions that I don't understand. I have nothing to grasp onto here as a, as an audience member. I don't relate to what they're saying. I don't understand why they're saying what they're saying. I don't understand the dynamics here and the history and the backstory. And like there I'm being giving, I'm being given nothing as an audience member until well over an hour into the movie where something happens and then you're like, oh, okay. 
well, at least it kind of makes sense now. It didn't make it any more enjoyable to sit through that, to learn this thing that happens, but at least everything kind of clicks into place. So that's the best that I can say about Faux is that like if you're watching it and you're completely confused and baffled and befuddled, like that is the intention of the filmmakers. And I just don't, I didn't particularly enjoy that experience. So maybe if, uh, if you, um, I don't know, are into like super, super challenging movies, maybe you'll get a kick out of this. But like, I, I consider myself uh, up for a challenge when it, you know, in, in terms of whatever movies are, are doing, but like, I just didn't find this to be uh, an engaging or enjoyable watch. So it's called Faux. It comes out in theaters uh, this Friday, and I believe it's going to be on uh, Amazon Prime Video at some point shortly. But um, yeah, I, I had a chance to speak with the director about it, and he basically was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm making no apologies for the story that we're telling here. Like, this is what we wanted to do with this movie. And like, I respect that. I just kind of, it wasn't for me. So uh, yeah, I'll be curious to know what you think about it if you decide to check it out, Jacob. Uh, having seen some of that negative response, has that like put you off toward watching it or does that make you, are you deranged enough to to be like, all right, now I got to see this thing. My, my watch list is so long these days that hearing something isn't good is a breath of fresh air. And it sounds horrible, I know, but it, it means I don't have to watch something that's going to waste my time. Yeah. I trust you and literally everybody else, including our critic on Slash Film, who, had, who shared a very similar sentiment in their review. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one movie that I definitely would recommend people see is called Sanctuary, which is streaming on Hulu right now. Have you seen this, Jacob? Sanctuary. No, this I have not. This is the one that stars a Margaret Qualley and Christopher Abbott. No, I have not seen this. Oh my God. Okay. I think you would really, really like this. It's basically a, uh, it's kind of a chamber piece. It all takes place in a hotel room and Christopher Abbott plays a, an heir to a big um, hotel chain. And he, uh, the beginning of the movie, uh, a woman played by Margaret Qualley walks in and she is basically interviewing him for the position of CEO of this hotel chain. And they have this big, long back and forth that lasts a few minutes. And then the interview starts turning weird all of a sudden. She starts asking questions that are like wildly inappropriate. And you're like, what the hell is going on here? And uh, this is given away in like the premise of the movie and all of the in all of the trailers and in all of the uh, descriptions of the movie. So if you don't want to know anything else about this, I would recommend fast forwarding a few seconds. I'll give you just a couple more seconds to do that in case this, that sounds intriguing. Uh, but I really, really enjoyed this movie and recommend that people seek it out. So uh, what is revealed in the first like five or 10 minutes is that uh, the character played by Margaret Qualley is a dominatrix. And uh, the Christopher Abbott character has hired her and they have had this longstanding relationship where uh, he wants to be dominated by this woman and he writes like scripts for her to say and uh, they enact these this whole thing. And the whole movie um, is this back and forth uh, power play type of situation uh, between these two characters. I saw somebody on our Slack, I'm trying to remember who it was, said that this movie has the juice that the Netflix movie Fair Play so desperately wants. Um, Fair Play is in theaters right now and it's coming to Netflix, I want to say this Friday as well. That's the one that's set in... Uh, like a hedge fund where Alden Ehrenreich and Phoebe Dynavor play uh, characters who work at a, head, a hedge fund and have a secret romance. And there's very much like a, the same kind of like, a, well, not exactly the same, but a, a power dynamic kind of struggle uh, with sexuality as like the, the forefront. Um, 
that's what that movie is about. And this movie is, I guess, yeah, superficially similar. But um, man, I really, really, really loved Sanctuary. I thought it was like a great example of what you can do with just a top tier script and um, really good actors who are like willing to go there and, and fully engage. And uh, it's a movie that takes place in one location, but it has like a lot of um, style and pizzazz to it. So yeah, I just wanted to put this on people's radar because this was a movie that I was, I had skipped earlier in the year. It didn't really get like a huge theatrical, uh, theatrical release. And I was kind of like, ah, do I really need to catch up with this before the end of the year? I guess I'll throw it on kind of thing. And I'm so glad that I did because I think this may end up being one of my favorite movies of the year. I'm not sure yet, but, uh, but it's, it's certainly up there. So it's called Sanctuary and it's streaming on Hulu right now. Uh, okay. What else? Oh, uh, the creator. Have you seen the creator yet, Jacob? Yes, it was, uh, it's been a fantastic fest like, a few days before it officially opened. So I saw it there. Okay. So what did you think about this one? I like the creator. I, I, since I saw it and I said positive things about it, I've heard from other people who have different perspectives on it that have me not to say re- reassessing my enjoyment of the film, but understanding that I think there's some blind spots that, uh, the filmmaker, uh, uh, the other words who I generally do like may have had and probably should have thought through beforehand. But that said, I think it's beautifully made. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the Joel Haldeman uh, 1970s anti-war military sci-fi novel. That's that your specific cup of tea. Um, I think that it's, I, I love that it's a really character focused, original science fiction story. And I, I also encourage you, if you like it, to definitely seek out the reviews of people who did not to understand what I didn't about how maybe it handles certain tropes of depicting Asian characters and nations. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And I think I also appreciate like, how this movie looks. And there's some a couple of really cool ideas in here that I haven't really seen before. Um, I guess I, I won't spoil them just in case people haven't gotten around to seeing this yet. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I you know, all props to Gareth Edwards for making a movie that looks incredible on a, a budget that was somewhere around $80 million. And it looks, you know, way, 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 way more expensive than that. I just kind of found myself bored by this movie a, a lot. Like I had the urge to check my phone, which I, I didn't do because I saw it in the theater. But um, I, you know, if I was watching this at home, I probably would have checked my phone, which is a bad sign. Uh, and I typically don't do that when I'm watching movies. But I just found myself like, uh, yeah, not fully engaged with what he was doing here. I, I love the the vistas and the look of the movie and the aesthetic and all that, but I just think the core story, he's asking you to emotionally uh, latch onto these characters and like really feel things. And like, he's going for this big melodramatic, like uh, punch you in the gut, get you in the heart, kind of like, um, you know, uh, tear jerking kind of ending. And like, I, I felt nothing. Like I, I just kind of, was like, okay, and shrugged my shoulders and <laughs> just did not engage with it at all on that level. So um, I appreciate it as a visual exercise and not much more than that, I'm sad to say. But uh, did, did the emotional yeah, I mean, stuff actually work for you, Jacob? Somewhat. I, I, I'll admit that my my biggest interest in this movie is that I think it's a neat movie. It has neat future tech. It has neat costumes. It has neat production design. It has cool special effects. Uh, it... Its story, as you said, it's very, very simple. I think I was engaged by it a little bit more than you were. But for me, this was very much a, oh, this is a old school, you know, post-Vietnam military sci-fi novel. Okay. And the post-Vietnam part, I latch onto that as terms of tone, in terms of this sort of um, uh, sad, regretful, you know, uh, why do we do violence style tone? And not necessarily mm-hmm. to what certain critics have rightfully pointed out as being a um, heavy-handed 
handling of yeah. uh, Vietnam War imagery, which not I'm I'm not I'm not the one to, to talk about this. I, I highly recommend people seek seek out other writers who are not me on that subject. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, the only other two movies that I wanted to mention just real quick are uh, I rewatched Twelve Angry Men and The Prestige, um, both I would say classic movies in different ways, like Twelve Angry Men. 1957, the directorial uh, feature feature directorial debut of Sidney Lumet. Uh, just an incredible movie that holds up super well right now. Like basically you can take almost all of the dialogue and just drop it into a 2023 context. And it's like just as relevant now as it was, you know, in the late fifties. So um, that you would have to add like the phrase MAGA and libs or something in there, but like the ideas behind it, it's, it's, it's a superficial, uh, uh, terminology thing, right? It's it's a matter of semantics. Like the the ideas and and um, mindsets behind these characters are very relatable and like very much the same uh, now as they as they were back then. So just an incredible movie, and like the blocking of this thing is is unbelievable. Like you know, I've seen tons of YouTube videos of like how Kurosawa was a master of blocking, and how Steven Spielberg is a master of blocking, and like. Uh, you know, just the idea of moving the camera around and seeing where people lie in the frame and what that does to you as a viewer psychologically and how it, it uh, you know, how the, how the placement of the characters in the frame, like, help uh, accentuate certain thematic ideas or whatever. All of that kind of stuff is like, this, this movie is a masterclass at that because, again, this is a movie that takes place essentially in one room for the, the whole thing. And, like, just the way, there are so many different ways he could have made this movie and the way that he did make it. Um, really highlights the mindset of these characters uh, as they're slowly being won over by one juror who wants to give uh, give a defendant um, the the shot that he deserves. So um, really, really, like great classic stuff. When was the last time you saw Twelve Angry Men, Jacob? Do you, I was about to do you say like this movie? A testament to how good this movie is is I was on vacation on a cruise earlier this year, and we had the TV on while we were just getting ready to head out, and Twelve Angry Men came on. My wife and I sat down to watch like 15 minutes to get ready. We end up watching the whole thing in our cruise ship bunk rather than go explore <laughs> the ship. So that's how good this movie is. Yeah, it's great. Uh, and then The Prestige, like I talked about not too long ago on an episode with BJ, how I read the novel for the first time and loved that because um, it's very different than the book in, in many ways. But also the um, the parts that were taken um, are like great. And I, I love the adaptation that happened here. And man, this movie is just like, no one uh, firing on all cylinders. I love this. The Uh, book's good too, but I think I prefer the movie, Ben. Yeah, I think I do too. It's the movie is like a little cleaner and like more um, satisfying and especially the ending. Like I, I love the book for the sort of uh, brazenness it has and like the uh, kind of like unexpected nature of it. But like there's something about the way that it all wraps up with like the, the trial of, of um, Christian Bale's character, which was an invention for the movie and like how all of that wraps up in the aftermath and like the, the, spot that this movie chooses to end its story is like so uh devastatingly effective so just i mean top tier great great like one of the best movies of the 21st century i think uh the prestige so great stuff just wanted to give that a shout out and recommend that people revisit it if it's been a while um okay jacob now let's get into it what what are the movies that you saw at fantastic fest this year all right i'm gonna, I'm gonna skip the ones that i actively did not like uh no no need to crap on movies that <laughs> when i have enough stuff to talk about that i liked um so I'll, I'll hit some of my highlights. Uh, I was at the world premiere of The Toxic Avenger, the new remake uh, from director Macon Blair, uh, who did that Netflix film with a very long title that I'm going to look up right now. Um, uh, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. That's that the right? one. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, but he's also been a character actor who's been in so many things. I know him best from uh, Blue Ruin and Green Room. But he's been in a ton of things. You've seen him in things. He was in Oppenheimer. He's Oppenheimer's lawyer, if you saw that movie uh, this year. Um, but this is a new uh, big budget-ish uh, adaptation of the character created by Troma Films you know, in the 80s. And Troma Films, for those who don't know, was this Z-grade, Z-budget, uh, make the nastiest, most repulsive horror comedies possible for pennies. Uh, and then turn a profit. Uh, James Gunn, you know, got his start there. He's the idea of the kind of um, talent they can create. And so it's very unusual to see Toxic Avenger, their, their, their trademark character, made in a movie, brought back in a movie that is well made. It has an actual budget. Peter Dinklage plays Toxic Avenger, the main character, who is this uh, janitor who falls into Toxic Sludge and gains superpowers. Um, but also has Elijah Wood and Kevin Bacon, um, Jacob Tremblay. It has actual actors and uh, all these actual actors and actual budget. Uh, being put toward a movie that features intestines being ripped out of butts, um, heads being crushed, uh, a henchman who is a uh, break dancer for an awful band who dresses like a Zodiac killer. Just, you know, really bad taste, gross <laughs> jokes, nasty stuff. Uh, but also, I, I would I'd say it's, it's not never, I don't think it's never as nasty as, as, a, tr- as a typical trauma film would have been. Uh, if you've ever seen trauma, they're, they're really, really nasty. And there's a bit more heart to this one, a bit more sweetness to it. I compared it uh, in my review to an episode of uh, a Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode. And there, when I interviewed the director, Macon Blair, as well, I, I kind of know that certain jokes feel like they, they have the rhythm and pace of a, of a classic Golden Age Simpsons joke. And he seemed to agree with that assessment. Uh, so I think I think if you go in expecting more of a live-action Treehouse of Horror episode, something that's you know R-rated but really cartoonish and really silly, uh, you can have a good time, especially since... Uh, it's really strange because some actually, like, like Kevin Bacon's going all in. He's just going gonzo, whereas Peter Dinklage is actually giving a pretty soulful performance. Like, as a, 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 a character who is ridiculous, but, you know, pretty realistic. Um, and, but he happens to be an, an ordinary schlub, you know, who's trapped in this cartoon world, essentially. Uh, this is an unusual movie. And I imagine that people who do not vibe with it, like, you'll know if you vibe with it, in it with maybe the first 10 minutes or so, are going to really dislike it. But if you... Like find yourself in the first ten minutes, like laughing at the dumb jokes and appreciating the background gags, which come like so fast. Like, there, there are so many jokes in this movie that I, I started losing track at, after a certain point of uh, how many things I should be keeping track of in terms of running background gags and and little asides. Uh, it's weird because I laughed very very hard at lots of the background jokes, but maybe I chuckled at most of like the, the big like front and center gags. So. I don't know. I, this is going to be a movie for some people. Um, I'm one of them. Uh, you may be too. I think probably dozens of us out there. Um, <laughs> it doesn't have distribution yet. Uh, I think Legendary definitely made this movie thinking, oh, with Peter Dinklage, you know, and a semi-recognizable name, we'll get this distribution, no problem. And then the actual movie is just gross and weird enough, putting enough for the major studios to want to stay away. But I imagine some streamer is going to gonna have to show interest at some point. It, it's It's... It's 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 too funny and bizarre, and there's definitely an audience for this, and I think that some people out there listening to this podcast are probably among that audience. Okay, so that's the Toxic Avenger, Jacob. When you were talking about it, it remind me a little bit of like a funnier version of James Gunn's Super. Does that seem kind of in the same family or not? Yeah, really? I'd say in the same family, less cruel than Super. I, I think that Making Blair has a bigger uh, th- at least at that point in his filmography, James Gunn was a much crueler filmmaker than he, than he mm-hmm. aged into, and now how he's sentimental as you can get, and I think he's better for it. But I think Making Blair um, has a bit more heart going in right now. You, you can tell that he's a father. You can tell that he wants the world to be a better place 
uh, the Toxic Avengers is a film that wants the world to be a better place, even as, even as it's having characters rip guts out through buttholes. So. <laughs> Excellent. I want to see that on the poster. Uh, okay, what else have you been watching, Jacob? Uh, it's out in theaters now. Uh, I've seen it twice now, both at Fantastic Fest, at its supposed world premiere, even though I know it's screened elsewhere, uh, and at um, and in the theaters with my wife because she's a big fan of the series alongside me. And that is Saw 10, or Saw X, or Socks, depending on how you want to pronounce it. <laughs> This is a good Saw. It's a really good Saw. I think I, I'd rank it third in the series behind Saw 6 and Saw 3. Uh, this one's directed by uh, Kevin Guter, who did Saw 6, the best one. And also, he also did Saw 7, which is the worst Saw. But here he is doing another top-of-the-line Saw. This is the first one to put Tobin Bell, the Jigsaw, like, really in the protagonist role. He's always been sort of in the background, you know, the overarching mastermind of, the, of all the rest of the films. You know, even though he died in Saw 3, he kept coming back in flashbacks. His master plan kept on coming, kept on coming to fruition even years after his death. <laughs> uh, but it's fun for this film, which is a straight-up interbetweenquel or prequel, whatever you want to call it. It takes place three weeks after Saw 1 and before the events of Saw 2. And the movie says, yes, he looks 20 years older. Who cares? Uh, Shawnee Smith is back as Amanda looking 20 years older. The movie doesn't care. Neither should you. And it just tells, you know, a story about, you know, this jigsaw killer uh, going on a very personal mission of revenge after the wrong people piss him off. If you've seen the trailer, you know the premise. Uh, but Tobin Bell, man, really good actor. And one of those really good character actors who took on a bit part in a small horror film in 2020, in, sorry, in 2004 and didn't know it would transform him into a horror icon. And here he is getting a chance to finally do the Freddy Krueger thing, finally do the Jason Voorhees thing, finally get to star in a Saw movie after being, you know, the, the, the face of, but not necessarily the star of the series, you know, for 20 years. So if you're a long-running Saw fan, this movie's for you. If you're not a long-running Saw fan, you may still enjoy it. It has Saw production values. It's better made than some of the earlier Saw films. It has real money and crafts put into it. It has some really nasty kills, but mostly... It's mostly for people like me who are very interested in watching Tobin Bell get the star in a Saw film, finally, <laughs> after 19 years. So uh, because we're right at the beginning of Octo October now, I'm guessing a lot of people are probably going to dive into the Saw movies, uh, if they hadn't already, like in the lead up to this movie. Um, because, you know, as we're heading toward Halloween, people might want to check out the Saw movies, uh, maybe for the first time even. And I'm curious if you think that people should watch the first Saw and then Saw X in theaters because it takes place right afterwards and then continue their journey in order? Or do you think this movie should be watched at the end of the of the tale? It should be watched at the end, and here's why. Uh, the Saw movies are become absolute labyrinths of plotting. They are fast and furious-like in that if you, if, you, if you miss one, the timeline starts to go crazy. You got to watch them all in order. You got to remember characters. You got to remember a character received this box in Saw 5. It won't come into play until Saw 7. That kind of nonsense. Um, but that's why it's fun to watch them in order is to see things play out like that. There, and even though Saw X takes place between Saw 1 and 2, it's not as plot dependent as other Saw films was. It, it, it kind of mostly stands alone. But it asks, answers some thematic questions. Here I am talking about thematic questions in the Saw franchise. <laughs> but it, it, it really... They kill Jigsaw off so early in the franchise and so clearly regret it immediately by having him come back for flashbacks and so much of the rest of the films that they never really had to had the time to ask, does John Kramer, played with Tobin Bell, actually believe in his own bullshit? And Saw X, after all, nine other movies, is prepared to answer that question. And I think okay. it's, more, it's more satisfying if you watch it in that order for that reason. Excellent. Okay. Uh, what else did you check out at Fantastic Fest? Uh, my big discovery of the fest, the one that does not have North American release date yet, and I, one I recommend you mark down and look out for, it's called UFO Sweden. Uh, it's directed by Victor Donnell, 
And it's from this collective of Swedish filmmakers who previously made a film called The Unthinkable, which I missed a few years ago, but now I desperately want to see. And this is a film, it's set in 1996, and it follows a teenage girl who uh, whose father vanished while, while hunting for UFOs eight years earlier. He's an amateur UFO hunter. Everybody assumed that he just left the family behind until eight years later, 1996, his car falls from the sky through the roof of, of a local barn. And, and it causes the girl to seek out her father's old uh, amateur UFO uh, hunter hobbyist collective, uh, UFO Sweden, who are still active, and request their help to see if her father could still be alive. And this movie is charming AF, Ben. It is so good. <laughs> you know how so many movies are like, hey, look at us. We're doing Amblin. Look at us. We're doing an 80s movie. Look at us. We're doing a 90s movie. And it always feels like a modern movie where everybody just happens to be wearing 80s clothes. And maybe with some references that you may recognize and wink at you. This actually feels like a 90s movie. It feels like it feels like it should be alongside movies like Contact and, you know, Coast Guard's The Third Kind. Uh, Arrival, I mean, it's a more recent example, but still. It genuinely feels like a truly great, modestly budgeted Hollywood film from the 90s. Kind of the kind that we acknowledge as being really good at the time, but don't acknowledge as being great until 20 years later. Mm-hmm. UFO Sweden kind of has that vibe going for it, if you know what I'm saying. Amazing. Uh, well, do you know if this one has uh, distribution yet or not? Or not not yet, yet, not yet. And I, I wrote a very positive review for Slash Film. You can read it uh, on the site. And I'm really hoping that it ends up somewhere soon, even if it's just a stream, because it, it's really charming and sweet. And there's F-bombs in it, but other than that, it's, it has a real PG flavor to it. Like, there's a lot of action, but no violence. Um, it, it's spooky, but never scary. And it, I don't want to say too much, but it really is sort of in dialogue with a really with one of the most famous sci-fi movies of all time. And a famous sci-fi movie that asks a question that I don't think it ever properly answers, and the UFO Sweden tries to answer it. Uh, and I'm really satisfied with the answer, and I found it really moving. Uh, so it's UFO Sweden. Uh, whenever it's released, you should absolutely seek this out immediately. Okay, excellent. You also had a chance to see Saltburn, the new movie from Emerald Fennell, right? Yes. Uh, ben, are you a fan of Emerald Fennell's previous movie, um, Promising Young Woman? I did like it, yes. I mean, it's a provocative movie on purpose, uh, but I found myself enjoying it, yeah. Yes, I'm a, I'm a big fan of... Promising Young Woman. I know there's a lot of people who don't like the movie for reasons that are legitimate, uh, but God help me, I, I like the way she pushes buttons. I I, I am a big. I, I like the, the the very specific way that she, she's a provocateur, and Saltburn continues that. If you liked Promising Young Woman, I have a hard time imagining you not liking Saltburn. Uh, it stars Barry Keegan, continues run of being one of like most surprisingly great actors around now. Like I, I've always liked him, but these past few years, I feel like he's like. Went from being like, oh, yeah, I like that guy to being, holy crap, I want to see whatever he does next. Yeah, um, he's leveled up for sure. And he plays a um, sort of lonesome, cash-strapped uh, guy um, uh, attending uh, a high-level UK university in the, in the early 2000s who um, sort of backs his way into a friendship with an extremely wealthy student who, whose family literally lives in a castle. And he gets invited to go uh, spend the summer with them. And... I don't want to say too much more except that really bad stuff happens to a lot of people. Uh, and if you are familiar with Patricia Highsmith, who wrote, you know, um, uh, some of the Alfred Hitchcock and, uh, you know, stories uh, like um, Stranger on a Train, or she also wrote The Talented Mr. Ripley and its sequel novels. Those are, that's the kind of vibe you should get here. The very dark, acidic, cynical thriller, um, queer overtones, uh, just a... The, the the feel bad comedy of the year for sure, but a comedy where I was completely compelled to see what was going to happen next to these characters, and especially Barry Keegan's character, who is uh, I guess a character I'll be talking about when we do our end of the year 
coverage for sure. Mm-hmm. Definitely a top top three villain of the year, maybe top one villain of the year. I don't know. We'll, we'll I'll, I'll leave it there. But Saltburn is a nasty piece of work and one that I chuckled through a lot, even as it got dark and bleak. Like I said, if you didn't like Promising Young Woman, if you don't like having your buttons pushed in a pretty severe way, um, skip this one. But if you enjoyed that, then this is going to be a movie you will definitely want to seek out. Amazing. Yeah, this one's pretty high on my list for the rest of the year. Um, okay, another movie that I'm, I'm very intrigued by that I think has a release for later this year is called Dream Scenario, uh, starring Nicolas Cage. What about this one? Yes, this is a new film from Christopher Borgley's first of his films I've seen. I've heard his first film is, is good. Um, I have not, but you know, I'll need to seek it out now. He's a Norwegian filmmaker, but his film is very much clearly about, I don't want to say an American phenomenon, but a phenomenon that's amplified by America, uh, America for sure. Which is uh, it's a social media movie, Ben. Uh, Dream Scenario is, I think, one of the first truly modern films about social media. If you see the trailer, you know it's about Nicolas Cage plays a man who starts appearing in people's dreams. He'll, he'll be having a regular nightmare, a regular dream, and he'll appear. He'll walk through the dream, and there's never a reason given for this at the start of the movie. People are just having dreams about the, about the guy who's just completely ordinary, very boring father of two who teaches out of college. And basically, the movie's about what happens when the dreams start becoming nightmares and about how what starts being this, you know, B-list celebrity of this guy who appears people's dreams turns into everybody's arch enemy number one overnight. It's about a milkshake ducking, Ben. It's a film about mm. a milkshake ducking, except it's also a sci-fi fantasy about dreams, if that makes any sense to anyone out there. <laughs> yeah, so it certainly makes sense to me. So yeah, if anybody else is like terminally online, you'll understand what that means. Uh, man, I, I actually don't want you to say any more about this, Jacob, because I'm like so curious about what the hell this movie is, because the trailer, I think, does a really good job of like painting the picture, but not filling it in too much. It kind of like gives you the outline, but doesn't really, you know, color color within too much. So uh, I'm excited to see for myself what happens with Dream Scenario. Yeah. November um, 10th, 824 is releasing it wide. Um yeah, and it's it's good. Um, I I won't say more of your requests, but yeah, if you like the trailer, you will you will like Dream Scenario. It's very funny and just creepy enough. Awesome. Uh, you also caught up with the latest entry in a long running horror series. Yes, I saw VHS eighty five. Uh, I've seen every VHS film. I have liked most of them. I have there has been some that were very disappointing. Uh, VHS ninety nine, uh, uh, last year's entry, with the exception of one really good segment, was very bad. Uh, VHS 85 is a huge rebound. Uh, every single segment in this found footage horror anthology hits. Um, some of them, the weakest of them is at least ambitious. The weakest of them is still one that's trying to do something completely 100% new with found footage horror. So I'm not sure if 100% works, but, but I respect it. So when the when the worst thing I can say about, about the weakest segment in, in a film is they swung for the fences. Good for them. Uh, the rest of it, you know, they range from being very funny to being very dark and very scary. Some of them are very violent. Um, one of them uh, does one of my favorite found footage things. It's a backhand compliment, so I hate to say it like this. But it's intentionally very, very boring until it's not. It generally feels like you're watching actual found footage until suddenly bad stuff starts happening. Mm. And when someone manages to pull that off, I, I like mad respect to that segment. But they're, they're all good. And if you like found footage horror and you like VHS, this is... I think, I'm, I think that individual segments from VHS 2 and 4 may rank higher. But this is the most uniformly best VHS film so far, if you happen to like this type of stuff. Wow, that's great news. Okay, so that this movie, is, I think, is coming to Shudder like, pretty soon, right? Uh, let's see, record this thing about October 5th. It's going to hit October 6th. Oh, perfect. Okay, so this Friday. Check that out. Um, all right, the next movie that you saw is definitely one of my favorite films of the year. What did you think about Eileen? Uh, Eileen, I wrote an article about this where I literally wrote an article that was literally, hey, don't read about this movie. 
Just don't. When the trailer hits, close your, close your eyes. Don't watch the trailer. Um, uh, don't read up the Wikipedia page. Don't read the back of the book synopsis on which it's based. I know some of you is going to send you scrambling to go as much as possible. Just just me saying this. Uh, but this is a film. I won't. I won't even, I won't even say the genre. I'll just say it's a period piece in the '60s, starring Thomas McKenzie, uh, Anne Hathaway, and Shay Wiggum. And all three of them are great, especially Thomas McKenzie, giving my favorite performance of the year, possibly. This is a real contender for best film of the year. Maybe, maybe topples Oppenheimer. I'm not sure. I need to see it again. Uh, no, is it? Um, there's a moment in Eileen where I thought I was watching one movie, then a line of dialogue is uttered, then I realize I was watching a different movie, and I felt the ground fall beneath me in a way that uh, shook me to my core. And I want everybody to have that experience. So Eileen hits uh, theaters in December from Neon, and you should see Eileen and skip the trailer. Yes, full cosign on everything you just said there. Love this movie. Can't wait. So we can, I can't wait until we can talk about it in more detail. Um, it'll definitely have at least one moment on our best movie moments of 2023 list when we do that early next year. Um, okay, the final movie that we're going to talk about here is one that uh, the, I, I watched the trailer for this, Jacob. I'm not like a huge horror guy. I dip in and out of the genre, as you know. Um, but I watched the trailer and I was like, man, it looks like this looks like some pretty gnarly stuff going on in this movie. Uh, tell me about the final film that you saw here. All right. I say this for last uh, intentionally because even though Eileen was my favorite film in the fest, When Evil Lurks is a film that I think is going to be the one that people are talking about. Uh, the horror, I think it's going to be a like the movie the horror fans just recommend to each other for the next couple of years. This is a new film from da- Damien Rugna. He's Argentinian. Uh, when Evil Lurks is his second film following Terrified, which also played Fantastic Fest a few years ago. And I saw it there. And that movie was terrifying. Like, it, it lives up to its title. It, Terrified, is, which was streaming on Shutter, is one scary ass movie. Uh, but it really is just a series of vignettes. Like, let's w- walk through a series of. Not quite short films, but a series of scenarios where very scary things happen. Uh, when Evil Lurks maybe initially feels that way, because uh, it initially feels like it's a little scattered. Like, what am I watching? Um, this is all hanging together. And it's because it puts plot momentum ahead of world building. It really slowly un- un- unveils what's going on in this world. If you feel confused 20 minutes in, it, it, that's, a, that's a feature, not a bug, I promise. And I found the, the, the very slow motion un- re- revelation as the, the state of this world and why this is happening to be so incredibly chilling. Um, but the reason why you keep watching even, even before that is that this movie is, this movie goes hard, Ben. Uh, there are, there's a moment early on where you watch it and say, oh, this must be the moment Jacob's warning me about on, on the Slash Film show because it's so unbearably brutal and violent and I can't stop watching. Then 10 minutes later, it tops itself. And 10 minutes later, it tops itself. <laughs> it is a relentless film. This is not for faint-hearted. It's not for people who have weak stomachs. It's not for people who don't like really hardcore hard. This is a film made for the real sickos. The Damien Rugna, at his introduction to the film, joked, uh, if you're a good person, feel free to leave the theater now. Um, <laughs> but it's... I don't want to say much more uh, other than to say that Damien Rugna is... Going hard on a level that I think that, you know, French horror filmmakers were going 15 years ago. You know, if you know that era, the French New Extremity. Except that, um, whereas those films, I think, were just exercises in, you know, human endurance put on screen. You know, like films that are all about human suffering. Mm-hmm. Damien Regna is making a supernatural horror film that has a real sense of the fantastic going on beyond the gnarly violence uh but like i said i don't believe in trigger warnings i think you should everybody should do their own research and approach films how, how in, in ways they feel comfortable doing but if you are if you are easily upset by any kind of violence for any kind of person or 
or animal. <laughs> Sorry, then you should be very, very cautious with what evil lurks. But it is by far the most riveting horror film I've seen this year in terms of, oh, I have never seen anything like this before. This is this guy is going to be working and making exciting stuff for a long time. So this one, I think, also got picked up by Shudder. Is that right? Yep, October 6th. It's streaming, and I recommend watching it soon because if there's stuff in this movie that if you're in horror circles, you start getting gift. I think you, should, you deserve it to see this stuff in context before you see the gift. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so yeah, that comes out tomorrow when people are listening to this. Amazing. Um, all right, so that's called When Evil Lurks. Jacob, thank you so much for uh, for giving the full rundown on Fantastic Fest. Um, you have... Uh, interviews and reviews from for a bunch of this stuff up on slashfilm.com. I will link to a bunch of them in the show notes. So I encourage people to go read more of your thoughts there. Uh, do you have anything that you want to plug here before we end the show? Uh, nothing to plug. No, except that I'm happy back on the show and I apologize for talking so much. No, no, man, this is great. I, this is exactly what I wanted. Uh, okay, excellent. This is going to be the end of today's show. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on the show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. The Slash Film Show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. 